Hey, everybody, and welcome into episode 49 of Jake's Take. I am Jake Heller. Appreciate you guys tuning in once again. Happy Friday evening. Hope everybody is having a great day. So real quick before we get started here, once again, another scheduling conflict with myself and Johnny Glow, but nevertheless, we're going to try and get a show in on Sunday morning, episode 50 of Jake's Take. That's absolutely incredible to think about. So I appreciate him, all of you guys, all of the support on the Jake's Take podcast page on Facebook. As usual, we are not lacking for topics whatsoever. So before we get into everything, recapping Homestead Miami Speedway and previewing the triple header weekend at Las Vegas Motor Speedway, of course, we got to get started with some NFL news. And this past Monday, shortly before one o'clock Eastern time, I say Eastern because J.J. Watt shocked us all. Now, as time went on and it became evident that J.J. Watt and the Houston Texans, that they were headed towards a divorce and he was granted his release on February 12th, immediately everyone thought, man, it would be perfect if he could go to the Pittsburgh Steelers and play alongside his two brothers, TJ and Derek. And despite all that, I knew in the back of my mind that that was never going to happen. Obviously, the Pittsburgh Steelers, like a lot of teams, but the Pittsburgh Steelers especially, they're in salary cap hell. No other way around it. So as time went on, I didn't get my hopes up about J.J. Watt going to the Steelers, but the teams that I constantly heard that were in the running for J.J. Watt were the Buffalo Bills, the Tennessee Titans, woo, and the Green Bay Packers. And I also heard some rumblings of the Indianapolis Colts and the Cleveland Browns being interested in J.J. Watt. So you think... Buffalo, Tennessee, Green Bay, Indianapolis, Cleveland, these are teams that are contenders and will be for the next several years to come. The Steelers, you know how I feel. As long as Ben Roethlisberger is still there, they're still contenders, and we'll get to him in a second. But to me, you know, once he retires, that team is going to go absolutely nowhere and will pretty much be fighting to finish third in the AFC North with, with the Cincinnati Bengals. Anyway, approximately 1 o'clock Eastern time on Monday, J.J. Watt shocked the NFL world, announcing that he was signing with the Arizona Cardinals. Who in the world saw that coming? It's a two-year contract, $31 million with $23 million guaranteed. Now, the one thing with J.J. Watt is he reunites with DeAndre Hopkins, who we all know, their time together with the Houston Texans, him and Bill O'Brien, they didn't see eye to eye. He traded him, you know, to the Arizona Cardinals in exchange for David Johnson, who, let's face it, is one of the more injury-prone running backs in the NFL. And, of course, obviously, we've seen the dysfunction with Bill O'Brien getting fired, Deshaun Watson winning out of there, so on and so forth. But to me, honestly, in my opinion, I think that J.J. Watt, made a horrible mistake signing with the Arizona Cardinals. Listen, every NFL player, at some point or another, they want to be with a team that gives them the best chance to win a Super Bowl. So in that case, you've got Buffalo, you've got Tennessee, you've got Green Bay, and to an extent, maybe Indianapolis or Cleveland. Why sign with the Arizona Cardinals? 
you know, this is a team, once again, that I feel like is going to be severely overhyped, just like they were last year. And, you know, Kyler Murray, I thought, did a hell of a job. I mean, him and DeAndre Hawkins, they quickly became one of arguably the top three quarterback-wide receiver combos in the NFL. But to me, I just don't see them as a true Super Bowl contender. Possibly a wild card, but not as a true Super Bowl contender, in my opinion. And it's like Kyle Williams said himself, you know, they have Chandler Jones there. Chandler Jones is better and healthier than J.J. Watt. So to me... You know, th- this is more about chasing money than it is about chasing Super Bowl rings, in my opinion. So, J.J. Watt to the Arizona Cardinals, two years, $31 million, 23 guaranteed. And, of course, we know about some of the severe injuries that he's had over, over the last five or six years. Time will tell. Only time will tell. I mean, he's a great leader, but a mistake, in my opinion, where he ended up signing. And Thursday afternoon... Once again, about 1 o'clock in the afternoon, Ben Roethlisberger and the Pittsburgh Steelers announced that they have agreed to a restructured one-year contract for 2021. $14 million. It's only about a $5 million pay cut for Ben Roethlisberger, who turned 39 years old this past Tuesday. To me, I've said it so many years, but I think this is definitely going to be Ben Roethlisberger's last season, especially when we talk about the salary cap situation, when we talk about how many free agents the Steelers have, how many guys that are probably not going to be returning. I'm already hearing that the Arizona Cardinals are interested in James Conner. That's one of them. Juju Smith-Schuster, you know, he constantly talks about how he wants to remain a Steeler, but... You've heard talks about the Raiders being interested in him, the New York Jets, now the Detroit Lions. So you have that. But especially it's like Jason Boone talks about the offensive line. You build within the trenches. And Alejandro Villanueva, it sounds like he's not going to be back. Matt Feeler from Bloomsburg sounds like he's not going to be back. Zach Banner, who tore his ACL Week one, Monday night against the Giants. And, I mean, what an amazing story it was for him to make the team against very, very steep odds. Sounds like he won't be back. And, of course, he got Bud Dupree. And we all saw how the Steelers crumbled when Bud Dupree tore his ACL that Wednesday game against the Ravens in early December. How they ended up losing five of their last six games after he went down. And Kyle Williams said it himself. He he said, if I was the Raiders, I would definitely make a run at Bud Dupree. I mean, let's face it. We know the Steelers are not going to have that much money to really be able to keep any of them. So, I mean, only a $5 million pay cut. To me, like I said, this is definitely, and I mean definitely, going to be Ben Roethlisberger's last season. As far as the running game goes, I'm very curious. Aaron Jones with the Green Bay Packers. I've heard that the Steelers are interested in him, but I also heard that the Miami Dolphins are interested in Aaron Jones. That 24th pick in the NFL draft. You know, what do you do if you're the Pittsburgh Steelers? You know, Najee Harris from, from Alabama. Is he even going to be available at 24? You know, there, there's talk about the Miami Dolphins possibly grabbing him with the 18th pick, their second pick. You know, because they have 
the third overall pick as well from the Houston Texans as part of the, the Laramie Tunzel trade. I see them potentially taking Devontae Smith from Alabama and reuniting him with Tua. So it's like Boone talked about, you know, you, you build within the trenches. At the same time, here's what pisses me off about the Pittsburgh Steelers. As I've said on so many shows, there is no future there with Mason Rudolph or Mike Tomlin. And just knowing how Art Rooney said that he wants Tomlin to be their coach going into the future and how there's talk that Mason Rudolph could be the starter for the Pittsburgh Steelers in 2022. Well, Art, if you want to finish dead last in the AFC North in 2022, so be it. Now, I know a lot of people say that, you know, Ben Roethlisberger – that they feel like he's the worst quarterback in the AFC North. Me personally, and this is not as a Steelers fan, I'm just saying me personally, I disagree on that. Lamar Jackson and Baker Mayfield, they're definitely considerably younger. But to me, I still need to see more consistency out of them. And me and Boone, we had a talk about it earlier today. Joe Burrow, you know, how is he going to respond to the torn ACL that he had against Washington back in November? I mean, you don't want to, but this could potentially be another situation where he turns into another RG3. I mean, we all remember the amazing rookie season he had in 2012 and tears the ACL, that wild card game against Seattle, and he was never the same after that. So I feel like the Steelers, they still have a chance to be contenders with Ben Roethlisberger, but once he potentially retires after the 2021 season, that window is going to be slammed shut. No doubt in my mind. Especially if Mason Rudolph is going to be the starter. I've even heard some talk that they might be interested in Mitch Trubisky. Dear Lord. Now, I've been saying it. Mel Kuyper Jr., we know him as the draft wizard on ESPN. He's been doing mock drafts forever. I mean, he's gotten a few of them wrong. But one of his mock drafts has the Pittsburgh Steelers taking In the second round, Kyle Trask from the University of Florida. And, you know, here I read something interesting the other day on Pro Football Talk on NBC Sports. Talking about, they mentioned Terry Bradshaw when he had to get elbow surgery done in 1983. And when he checked into the hospital, he checked under the name of Thomas Brady. How ironic is that? You know, Tom Brady was five and a half years old when that happened. So, I was reading on Pro Football Talk. This was a tweet on Wednesday about that infamous 1983 draft and how the Pittsburgh Steelers, to this day, my dad still talks about it. Why in the hell would you release, or not not release, why in the hell would you not draft Dan Marino, especially with him playing for the University of Pittsburgh and being from Pittsburgh. And look at how long it took them to find a franchise quarterback in Ben Roethlisberger. It took 21 years for them to find a franchise quarterback. So this was the tweet by Pro Football Talk on Wednesday about the Pittsburgh Steelers and about Terry Bradshaw his last season in 1983. And it goes something like this. I'm just trying to find it here one second. 
All right. So March 3rd, 1983, Terry Bradshaw had minor elbow surgery under the name of Thomas Brady. Bradshaw would only throw eight more passes in his career due to the injury. P.S. The Steelers then passed on Dan Marino in the 1983 draft, in part because they didn't want an awkward transition from Bradshaw to his replacement. They didn't want an awkward transition from Bradshaw to his replacement. (coughs) Okay. Cliff Stout, Mark Malone, Bubby Brister, Neil O'Donnell, Kent Graham, Jim Miller, Mike Tomczak, Cordell Stewart, Tommy Maddox. These are just some of the guys that they had that 21-year gap before they drafted Ben Roethlisberger. And people wonder why Bill Cowher only won one Super Bowl. I mean, hell, think of it. Think of the fact that he made it to a Super Bowl with Neil O'Donnell. Think of the fact that he made it you know, to an AFC championship with Cordell Stewart. How he made the playoffs with Jim Miller and Mike Tomzak, of all people. I hope that the Steelers are not going to use this same BS excuse for passing on a guy like Kyle Trask. You know, I can only picture it how many years down the road. The Steelers then passed on Kyle Trask in the 2021 draft, in part because they didn't want an awkward transition from Roethlisberger to his replacement. See, these, I mean, Colin Coward, I. I hardly ever agree with him on anything, but he said it that Monday on the herd. He said the the Pittsburgh Steelers are still stuck in 1975, the way that they operate things. And I mean, these are just the latest examples of it. And then earlier this morning, the Washington football team, they released quarterback Alex Smith. Of course, what an amazing, and I mean, absolutely amazing story in itself to win comeback player of the year, coming back from not only a career threatening injury but a life-threatening injury as well that leg injury in November of 2018 against the Houston Texans and J.J. Watt and Alex Smith he's going to be 37 in May it sounds like he still wants to play but that's the thing like where does he go would it be the Chicago Bears would it potentially be the Jacksonville Jaguars to reunite himself with his his college coach Urban Meyer and serve as a mentor and a backup to Trevor Lawrence only time will tell Now, on Wednesday, NASCAR did announce the format for the Bristol Dirt Race coming up in a few weeks. And as expected, just like the truck races that they had at Eldora, they're going to have heat races to determine the starting lineup. It says random draw determines heat race designation and starting position for the heat race. The draw will be in order of current owner points. Now, the heat races, it will be four Qualifying races, 15 laps apiece, only green flag laps count, no overtime, free pass and wave around procedures in effect. Now, just like the duels, the qualifying races, the winner gets 10 points, second place gets ninth, third place gets eighth, so on and so forth, all the way down to 10th place getting a point. The interesting thing is that passing points will be awarded. That's right, passing points. The difference between assigned starting position and finishing position. If you pass a car in the racetrack, that's a point. If you get passed, no points deducted whatsoever. And then a tiebreaker it goes off of owner points. I like the heat races. I like adding the points total just like they do in the duels. 
to me, this these passing points, I'm very, very mixed about it. First off, it's hard enough to keep up with stage points. And now, having to keep up with passing people during heat races and everything, that's just going to be confusing in itself. Now, the cup race itself, it's going to be 250 laps compared to the usual 500 laps, the spring race at Bristol. First stage is going to end lap 75, second stage lap 150, and then for the truck race, 150 laps. Stage 1, lap 40, stage 2, lap 90, and it says, Running order will be frozen at the conclusion of each stage. During the stage breaks, teams can change tires, add fuel, and make adjustments to their cars or trucks. Non-competitive pit stops must be completed in a designated time by NASCAR. No fuel or tires except at stage breaks. And it says teams that elect not to pit will restart ahead of teams that did pit. And that restart order will be determined by the freeze at the conclusion of the preceding stage. Uh, The problem I have with NASCAR is now it says that the choose rule will not be in effect but the overtime rules, the free pass, the wave arounds, things of that nature will. The problem I have with NASCAR is a lot of times, instead of just simplifying things, they have to <laughs> complicate it. You know, honestly, these rules anymore, you pretty much have to be a rocket science- scientist to figure these things out. So, like I said, I don't mind awarding points for the heat races, but the passing points and also the pit road procedures, I'm, I'm kind of on the fence about that. And then earlier today, Nashville Mayor John Cooper signed a letter of intent to renovate the Nashville Fairgrounds. And on hand for the announcement was none other than Dale Earnhardt Jr., who has been undoubtedly the biggest advocate for NASCAR to come back to the Nashville Fairgrounds. I mean, we're going to Nashville Super Speedway Father's Day weekend, but even when the schedule was announced, you could hear the disappointment in Dale Jr.'s voice that it was Nashville Super Speedway and not the Nashville Fairgrounds. So, anyway, they were going to be working really, really hard on renovating it and Bristol Motor Speedway. It's all part of a a lease agreement. And it says under the lease agreement, Bristol Motor Speedway, that they would pay an annual lease payment for track management and operations and share a percentage of revenues from events. And for four weeks a year, Bristol Motor Speedway will lease all fairgrounds property except for Major League Soccer and commercial developments. And the other cool thing today with Dale Earnhardt Jr. was he, two years ago, he found a 1986 Chevy Nova that his father raced in the Bush Series and that his uncle, Robert G. Jr., had built back in 1984. And Robert G. Jr., he'd been working really, really hard on renovating this Nova. And Dale Jr. actually took it for a spin around the industrial park in Mooresville, North Carolina, right by the Jr. Motorsports facility. And Dale Jr. tweeted earlier today that that Chevy Nova is going to be pacing the field for a couple laps before the May 8th Xfinity race at Darlington. So that is pretty awesome in itself, and it further adds to the question, what is his Xfinity race for 2021 going to be? Because originally he wanted to do the spring race at Martinsville April 9th, but his sponsor, Hellman's, there was a bit of a scheduling conflict, and he doesn't want to do it in October because that's right in the thick of the Xfinity playoffs. So he hinted that it could be at a track that he has raced at ever since he retired from full-time 
competition, but those tracks have been Richmond in the fall of 2018, Darlington in 2019. I was there at that race and Homestead Miami Speedway last June, but obviously Homestead was this past weekend and he wasn't out there. Josh Berry was driving the eight car. So I guess that sort of narrows it down to maybe Dale Jr. could be racing Labor Day weekend at Darlington again or racing September 11th at Richmond because that's their only Xfinity race for 2021. I really can't think of anything else. You know, Josh Berry, he's going to be driving the car until Sam Mayer turns 18, the day of the Xfinity race at Pocono, June 27th. So definitely puzzling when Dale Earnhardt Jr. will be doing his lone Xfinity race for 2021. So this past weekend at Homestead Miami Speedway, on Saturday we had the NASCAR Xfinity Series. That race got going a little after 5 o'clock with Austin Sendrick on the pole and Daniel Hemrick starting alongside of him. And, you know, to no surprise early on, Austin Sendrick running away with it and Noah Gregson, of course, marching his way through the field, running right up against the fence. And we saw the importance of tires. We saw how all the colleague cars, A.J. Allmendinger, Justin Moneymaker Haley, Jeb Burton, they all pit during this early caution. Others stay out, and they're able to charge through the field. And A.J. Allmendinger makes up for the mistake that he made the week before in the Daytona road course, and he goes on to win the first stage. Now, Harrison Burton, who won the Saturday Xfinity race at Miami last year, not such good luck this time around engine blowing up 70 laps under the race but from that point on Noah Gregson taking the lead being in control but as we have seen the first three Xfinity races of 2021 nothing but horrible luck for junior motorsports and shortly before halfway Justin Allgaier and Riley Herbst coming off a of turn two and on the back straightaway Justin thought that he was clear, and he really wasn't, and the two of them squeezed each other into the wall, and just like that, Justin's day was done. And for tomorrow, for the Xfinity race at Las Vegas, he's going to be starting all the way back in 37th. And this was the guy that I picked at the beginning of the year to win the Xfinity championship. I mean, the the more bad finishes that keep piling up, I'm going to have to change my championship pick to Austin Cindric to go back-to-back before you know it. About that same time, Ty Dillon, on his 29th birthday, looking absolutely incredible, running just outside the top five. Sure enough, the radiator breaks, and his day is over. And, I mean, that's the thing. I mean, this poor kid has had nothing but bad luck ever since he's been trying to make it on his own. Instead of driving cars for Pop Pop, now driving for Joe Gibbs, and driving for the Gaunt Brothers in the Cup Series, missing out on the Daytona 500 by just inches, having a car that could have won the Xfinity race at Daytona. And sure enough, him and Daniel Hemrick, teammates getting together. And then sure enough, the radiator busting half just before halfway in this race. But as we have seen for about the past year or so, Noah Gregson and Austin Sendrick, I mean, the two of them pretty much dominating the Xfinity series. Austin going on to win the second stage. And then from that point on, Noah Gregson pretty much being well in command of the race. And really the only real competition that he had was Brett Moffitt. And Brett sort of got into the wall late there with just a couple laps to go. 
And so it's looking like Noah Gregson, finally, the third Miami race in a row that he's dominated. It's looking like he is going to win. And every lap, him running right up against the wall, right up against the fence. And obviously, how much of a gap that he had between himself and Tyler Reddick. I mean, here he has an eight-second lead with three laps to go. At the same time, David Starr, driving for Carl Long, one of the more underdog teams in the sport, David Starr was running 12th, 12th in a Carl Long Toyota. I mean, this was a remarkable run that David was having. And as he went off into turn three, all of a sudden, his right front tire sort of corded. And he was just about to hit the wall. And Noah, running right up against the very fence, had nowhere to go and rammed right in the back of David Starr. So it's sort of, it's a, it's a touchy subject. Like, who, who do you really blame? You, you know, David Starr getting ready to go a lap down, but running in 12th with an underfunded team. You know, they're always instructed in the driver's meeting, you know, lap cars, stay on the bottom and get out of the way for the leader. At the same time, Noah Gregson, you've got an eight-second lead. You're pretty much going to be good on fuel to the end. You're up by eight seconds on Tyler Reddick, who, as we know, the master of running the wall at Miami. I mean, was it really worth it having to run right up against the wall? I mean, granted, hey, go to the bottom, pass David Starr. You might lose, you might lose a couple seconds, a couple tenths, but race stays green and you go on to win instead of an, another horrible finish to start off 2021. So Noah got out of the car, and, I mean, he was hot. He was pissed off. I mean, I was a little pissed off myself, too, because I picked him to win. But sure enough, when Jamie Little went to go interview him on Fox Sports 1, and asked about what happened. Noah Gregson said, you got dipshits in the way every single week. And while I get that, and while I understand that frustration, and I mean, hey, if I was 22 years old, you know, I probably would have said the same thing myself. At the end of the day, it's not like David Starr went off in that corner and was like, oh, I'm just going to drive right into the wall and screw Noah Gregson. I mean, that's not the case. I mean, when when a tire gets quartered or a tire goes down, there's nothing much you can do. That car is going to go straight into the wall. At the same time, like I said, probably it would have been best for Noah to maybe go down to the bottom, maybe go to the middle, and then situations like this wouldn't have happened. At the same time, Noah needs to realize that while he's outspoken and while he's himself, a lot of people love it, a lot of people hate it too. And acting like that and calling David Starr and some of the backmarkers, calling them dipshits, it's things like this that are pretty much preventing Noah from making that leap to the Cup Series. Think of it. I mean... You know, you're driving for Dale Earnhardt Jr. You drove for Kyle Busch in the truck series. You could have taken over the 48 car this year instead of Alex Bowman. You could potentially be taking it over next year. But a lot of times when you say things like that, and you call David Starr or, or another backmark, and you call them dipshits, that's going to turn away a lot of 
cup sponsors and cup teams, no matter how much money you might have, no matter how much backing you have from Bass Pro Shops and Black Rifle Coffee. You know, and, and it's a double-edged sword. I get it. I mean, we want drivers to have personality, but nowadays, I mean, you, you look at Kurt Busch. Well, look at the outburst that he had at Miami in 2011 and how that cost him a ride with, with Penske, how Shell Pennzoil was like, we don't want this guy representing our brand anymore. Now, Noah and Dale Earnhardt Jr., they do have a good relationship. And Dale, he raced against Carl Long in the early 90s, racing against him late model races at North Wilkesboro and other short tracks in North Carolina. And Dale said to himself, you know, Carl Long, Carl Long kicked his ass in a lot of late model races and even helped him out a lot in these late model races when he was struggling trying to, trying to learn these tracks and trying to learn what works in a race car. He said that Carl helped him out tremendously. And he said it's a shame how Carl never really got that chance to be in top-notch equipment. And he said that he just wants Noah to realize that other side of the garage area the ones that don't have the budget of a junior motorsports or a team Penske or, you know, Joe Gibbs racing, you've got to understand, you know, these guys, they're in, like I said, they have their own race. So that's the thing, you know, Noah, I get the frustration, but at some point, man, you've, you've got to move on and you've got to understand. And Carl Long himself, this is what he wrote on Facebook just a couple days after this. And it was the picture of the tire, and sure enough, it was corded. And Carl Long wrote, This is the right front tire that came apart on David Starr while running 12th on the lead lap with a few laps remaining. The tread came apart as he dropped down to give Gregson the top lane. The car then slid up into the wall. Gregson made a statement that we were dipshits that did not belong on the track. Well, this over-entitled mouthpiece did not have enough talent to miss our wreck. We were happy to take home a top 12 finish that rolled right out of our hands, just like the rubber that rolled off of this tire. There are not many people in this garage who have worked as hard and have sacrificed as much to get to this level. Statements like this could and usually does come back and cost them. So, Noah, like I said, man, I get the frustration, but just understand and just realize that those kind of statements, they could come back to bite you. No, Gregson and that 62 team, they want to run the cup race at Talladega. But with no qualifying, there is only one way that they can't that they would be able to run the cup race at Talladega. And you want to know what that is? If Carl Long's 66 team with Timmy Hill, if they decide not to run that cup race at Talladega in April, if they decide to do that, no, Gregson and that 62 team, they will not be in the cup race April 25th at Talladega. So like the old saying goes, man, karma. So, great point there by Dale Earnhardt Jr. And let's not forget how the son of a seven-time champion, but also his, favorite, his other favorite driver growing up was Jimmy Means. And Jimmy, Jimmy was an underdog. He was an independent from Alabama. And Dale Jr. and Jimmy's son, Brad, they would usually go through the garage in the 80s and try to see, like, what spare parts they could get from his dad's race car or Richard Petty or, or whoever – just to help Jimmy out. And Jimmy himself, you know, he has an Xfinity team right now with Greg Galding. And Dale Jr. told the story a long time ago. It was in 1987. It was 
the cup race at Richmond, the year that his dad won 11 races and won his third Winston Cup championship. And that year at Richmond, Jimmy passed him for the lead in his own car and led a bunch of laps before, you know, obviously, the equipment gave out, but he still got a top 10. And Rick Hendrick noticed that, and Rick put him in a Hendrick Motorsports Cup car for the October race at Charlotte, and he qualified fifth. And this was Dale Jr.'s birthday weekend, and he said he was absolutely thrilled, thrilled to see his underdog, his, one of his heroes, Jimmy Means, get a shot to drive for Rick Hendrick. And then when you know it, just a few laps into the race, there was a huge pileup in between turns three and four, and Dale Senior was swept up in it, a bunch of other cars were swept up in it. And Dale Jr. said himself that it didn't really bother him all that much that his dad was swept up in it because he had won so many, he'd won 11 races that year and he had won the Winston. But when he saw that Jimmy's car was all torn up, he said it absolutely broke his heart and he, and he started crying because he realized that was his one shot, his one shot to make a statement to the garage area about the kind of talent that he had. So Noah, like I said, man, just think sometimes so sure enough the race goes in overtime Tyler Reddick Myatt Snyder AJ Allmendinger spins going down to turn one so we have another overtime and this time around you know Myatt Snyder he did a really really good job getting right to Tyler Reddick's quarter panel and Myatt Snyder driving for Richard Childress goes on to score his first NASCAR Xfinity Series win holding off Tyler Reddick, but unfortunately, Tyler would end up getting disqualified. So Brandon Jones was second, Daniel Hemrick third after the problems he had on pit road, Jeb Burton fourth, Austin Sendrick fifth, Justin Moneymaker Haley sixth, Brett Moffat seventh, Ryan Sieg eighth, Jeremy Clements ninth, and Josh Berry finishing tenth for Dale Earnhardt Jr. He had some tire issues, got his lap back, came all the way back up to get a top ten, and the other junior motorsports driver, Michael Annette, he finished 13th. Sadly, earlier in the week, Michael's father, Harold, passed away from a brief illness. So our, my thoughts, prayers, and condolences, they go out to Michael and his family, and he's going to have his dad's name on his race car tomorrow at Las Vegas Motor Speedway starting 13th. So triple header weekend for NASCAR and Las Vegas Motor Speedway. Tonight we have... The Camping World Truck Series, 9 o'clock on Fox Sports 1. Ben Rhodes, he is on the pole. Sheldon Creed will start second. John Hunter Nemechek, third. Third, excuse me. Matt Crafton, fourth. Christian Eck is fifth. Todd Gilliland, sixth. Chandler Smith, seventh. Derek Krause, ninth. Stuart Friesen, tenth. And Carson Hosevar rounds out the top ten. And, of course, we cannot forget, in the field tonight, for the first time, this season in 2021 with the Truck Series, none other than the King himself as far as the Truck Series, Kyle Busch. He will be starting 29th in the number 51 Cessna Toyota, starting alongside Haley Deegan and starting behind him, Austin Hill, who's won the last two fall races at Vegas with the Truck Series, and Zane Smith in 32nd. He's got to get his season turned around. He's had some horrible luck to start the season. The other cool thing, too, is Marcus Slimonis, who is the guy in charge of Camping World. Look at how many trucks tonight he has that are 
that have Camping World, that have their colors and their logo on them. Sheldon Creed, our defending series champion, is one of them. And you look at his teammate, Raphael Lassard. You look at Grant Enfinger. Grant Enfinger driving for Cordy Rohrbach's team in a Chevrolet after being forced to do part-time work and, and split the 98 truck with Christian Eckes. It is really, really cool to see Marcus Limonas give back to the sport like that and to be also some underdogs. Norm Benning has Camping World on his truck. Parker Kligerman, who's, who's going to start last tonight. But ultimately, you know, Sheldon Creed, I mean, he dominated there in September. He ended up finishing second. He got into the wall a little bit. Austin Hill was there to take advantage. But obviously, with Kyle Busch in the field, I'd be an absolute fool to bet against him. So Kyle Busch, he is my pick for tonight's truck series race. You know, it was funny. Jason Boone and I, we were joking after Ben Rhodes went 2-0 after winning Daytona and winning on the Daytona road course. And he joked with me, and he said, Ben 36-0 Rhodes. <laughs> you know, a little bit of a joke that, that we have. And I told him, I said, well... I said, I think Kyle Busch is going to have something to say about that when we get to Las Vegas. But sure enough, Boone's pick for tonight is Sheldon Creed. And like I said, I went with the chalk pick, as he would say. I went with Kyle Busch. So 9 o'clock on Fox Sports 1, Vince Walsh, Michael Waltrip, and Austin Dillon, who has a truck series win at Las Vegas Motor Speedway, ironically on my birthday in 2010. They will be providing the call tonight on Fox Sports 1. Now, for the Xfinity Series tomorrow, 4.30 on Fox Sports 1, Adam Alexander, hometown kid Kurt Busch, and Joey Logano, they will be providing the call. Myatt Snyder, he is on the pole. Austin Sendrick will start second. Daniel Hemrick third. Brandon Jones fourth. And Jeb Burton fifth. Justin Moneymaker Haley will start sixth. Brett Moffitt seventh. Jeremy Clements eighth. Josh Berry, ninth, and A.J. Allmendinger rounds out the top 10. Ryan Sieg, 11th, Riley Herbst, 12th. Michael Annette, like I said, racing in memory of his father, who sadly passed away earlier this week. He will start 13th. Landon Castle, 14th. J.J. Ailey, 15th. Some other notables. Ty Dillon, his third start in the 54 car. He will start 20th. Teammate Harrison Burton, right behind him in 22nd. Looking a little further down the field, Jeffrey Earnhardt in 30th. Noah Gregson, 34th in at his home track. Justin Allgaier, 37th. My championship pick at the beginning of the year. And Tyler Reddick, who won an Xfinity race at Las Vegas in the fall of 2019 for Richard Childress. He also won there in the Truck Series in 2016, driving for Brad Keselowski. He will be starting 40th on the field. Now, looking back to last year at Las Vegas Motor Speedway, Noah Gregson, Justin Allgaier, that junior motorsports duo, Austin Sindrick, they all had fast cars in that race. But both of those Xfinity races at Las Vegas Motor Speedway, those were swept by Chase Briscoe. He won there in February of last year, holding off Austin Sindrick. And then, sure enough, in September, holding off Austin Sindrick. And a junior motorsports trio, Noah Gregson, Justin Allgaier, Daniel Hemrick, they were all fast that night. 
But obviously, Riley Herbst, he is in the 98 car, and obviously he hasn't done anything in that car so far. Aside from, I mean, both races really just a victim of unfortunate circumstances, whether it was at Daytona or on the road course, and then, of course, the situation this past weekend with Justin Allgaier. So with that being said, another chalk pick for, for this weekend. But sure enough, I got to go with the 22 of Austin Sendrick. Obviously, the speed that him and Brian Wilson have had this past year, especially on the mile and a half. As far as Boone, he is going to take the pick that I had this past weekend, Noah Gregson getting the win in front of the hometown crowd. So this past Sunday at Homestead Miami Speedway, you know, on our Daytona 500 show and on last week's show, myself and Jason Boone, we talked a lot about drivers that have to step it up, that have to perform this year. Otherwise, they're going to be looking for a new ride in 2022. I mean, obviously one of them is Matt Benedetto. Another one of them is Alex Bowman. But another name that we mentioned was William Byron. And even though William has a contract with Hendrick Motorsports through 2022, we've often seen how those are usually option years. We saw it with Kyle Busch when he got kicked out of Hendrick Motorsports at the end of 2007. You know, 2008 and 2009, those were option years on his contract. So even with Liberty University and even with Exalta, there was no doubt that William Byron had to perform. And his luck so far going into last week at Homestead Miami Speedway, it was absolutely atrocious luck. Qualifying on the front row for the Daytona 500, second to his teammate Alex Bowman, dominating that second dual race on Thursday night. Only get swept up in a wreck with Brad Keselowski and Garrett Smithley. Cars torn all to hell. He has to start at the back of the field. And then 15 laps in, gets torn up, almost flips over in the Daytona 500. And finishes many laps down in 28th. Then the Daytona road course had a car capable of finishing in the top 10. Blows through the chicane and ends up finishing 33rd. So going into this past Sunday... William Byron was starting 31st on the field at Homestead Miami Speedway. A lot of times with drivers, there are certain crew chiefs that they just mesh with. I mean, we saw it with Dale Earnhardt Jr. and his uncle Tony Uri Sr. And then eventually Steve Letarte towards the end of his career. But we, and we saw it with Brad Keselowski and Paul Wolf for a long time before that sort of ran its course. And now he's got a great relationship with Jeremy Bowens. I mean, we saw it. Jimmy Johnson and Chad Knauss, that's the prime example. Look at that. 16 years together, seven championships. That eventually ran its course. And Chad, how he went from the 48 over to the 24 with William Byron in 2019. And while he made William Byron better, there was no doubt about it, they didn't live up to their full potential. And what I mean by that is you look at William Byron's rookie year in 2018. Not a single top five finish with Darian Grubb. Four top tens on the year. And a lot of those races were races where there was tons of attrition. Texas Motor Speedway was one of them. Pocono Raceway in July. I mean, well, Pocono and Watkins Glen, he had really, really, he 
was phenomenal at both of those races. But sure enough, Phoenix in November, that was an attrition race. But sure enough, their first year together in 2019, they won five poles, five top fives, 13 top tens, but they still couldn't seal the deal. He finished second to Justin Moneymaker Haley at Daytona in July when that freak deal with the Lightning dominated at Pocono, the June race at Pocono from the pole, but lost that track position and was never the same. You know, the Charlotte Roval dominated the first half of that race, just didn't have that track position there at the end. And last year was a brutal year for both of them. They did not score a single top five until August 23rd at Dover. And that was the day after that meltdown that they had on the radio when they finished 28th that Saturday at Dover. And Chad said to him, I'm trying to effing help you. That was definitely a turning point. They finished fourth that Sunday at Dover, William finally gets that breakthrough cup win august 29th at daytona and the opening round of the playoffs to finish fifth at darlington and looking like he was on his way to making it to the round of 12 and him and joey gase him you know running into the back of joey gase at bristol and finishing 38th and that ruining any chance he had at making it to the round of 12 but anyway my point is with chad chad was old school he was hard-nosed he was he was going to get on your ass regardless. And William Byron, to me, a lot like Dale Earnhardt Jr., you need that positive reinforcement. And, I mean, don't get me wrong. You know, Dale Earnhardt Jr. and Tony Urey Sr., Tony Sr. was never afraid to chew his ass out at any time. I mean, look, sure enough, five seasons together, they won 15 races in the 2004 Daytona 500. But obviously with Willie B and, you know, with Dale Jr., they need someone to pump them up, to give them that reassurance, you know, hey, man, you're doing a hell of a job. Go get them. Instead of that that abrasion that you saw from Chad Knauss or Lance McGrew or even Tony Uri Jr. for that matter. And so on September 29th, it was announced that Chad Knauss was going to step down as a crew chief and become the vice president of competition for Hendrick Motorsports. A few weeks later, it was announced that Rudy Fugel was going to be William Byron's crew chief. And Rudy, his rookie season in 2016, driving for Kyle Busch Motorsports, they won seven truck series races together. Their one season alone, seven truck races together. Kansas, Texas, Iowa Speedway, Kentucky. I was at Pocono, and he dominated that truck race dominated at New Hampshire but then ultimately the blown engine at Phoenix missing out on the championship and then sure enough winning their last race together Homestead Miami Speedway he went to Rick Hendrick he said to him hey let's hire someone outside this organization I believe in Rudy Rudy still believes in me you know it's sometimes it's good to get someone outside the box with new fresh ideas And sure enough, look at this past Sunday at Homestead Miami Speedway to start 31st on the field, drive his way up into the top 10 early on. And at the end of the first stage to finish fourth, and then the second stage to sneak underneath Denny Hamlin when him and Martin Truex Jr. were racing each other to win that second stage. And sure enough, to win in dominating fashion, leading 102 of 267 laps. To beat Tyler Reddick by almost three seconds. And I mean, that's the thing. Tyler Reddick, he was flying like a bat out of hell at the end of that race. 
And I think if that race would have been about four or five laps longer, who knows? He probably would have gotten William Byron. But nevertheless, this was a huge, and I mean huge, breakthrough win for William Byron. Because let's face it, you win at Daytona and everyone's like, oh, it's Daytona. Anyone can win at Daytona. But to start 31st at Homestead Miami Speedway, a driver's racetrack without a doubt. Granted, it pays off to have that Hendrick horsepower. Granted, it pays off to have those race cars and a bright mind like Rudy Fugel. But to me, this definitely solidifies what I believed all along. You know, people, Chase Elliott is very talented, and rightfully so. Same with Kyle Larson. And, of course, we know how people just overhype the crap out of Alex Bowman, acting like he's the second coming. This past Sunday validated to me what I believed all along, that William Byron is a hell of a lot better than Alex Bowman. Way more talented and way more classier, too, let's face it. So, huge, huge win for William Byron. And I know that Sean Rosansky was just absolutely thrilled for him to emerge victorious Sunday night at Homestead Miami Speedway. Now, the race itself, originally Denny Hamlin was going to be on the pole. NASCAR found something wrong with the car. They sent him to the back of the field for unapproved adjustments, and he joined Corey LaJoy and Alex Bowman back there for unapproved adjustments. So that moved Joey Logano and Brad Keselowski up to the front row, and sure enough, Joey, he led the first 12 laps, and then Brad took the lead from him, and it was looking... For quite a while, like Brad was going to walk away with this first stage. He led 40 laps, but here came Chris Busher. And obviously, Josh Manley, my former co-host on the Average Joe's podcast. Josh, you know, he'll tell you he's a Brad Keselowski fan, but as far as a second favorite goes, it's Chris Busher. This kid has always had raw talent with really some, I guess you could say maybe second rate or maybe third rate equipment. Let's face it. JTG Doherty, even before they got the alliance with Hendrick Motorsports, and of course Roush, you know, they're trying really, really hard to revive that program. For Chris Busher to drive all the way up from 12th to take the lead from Brad Keselowski and to win that first stage and to lead 57 laps, it was so refreshing. Obviously, that's the most laps Chris Busher has ever led in any cup race whatsoever. You know, it was frustrating and unfortunate to see him fade to 19th there at the end. But like I said, definitely an attaboy to Chris Buescher, Luke Lambert, and Rash Fenway Racing. I mean, they have worked really, really hard to get those cars better. And it's a true testament to Jimmy Fenning, who was Kurt Busch's championship crew chief in 2004. You know, Jimmy, ever since he retired from being a crew chief, you know, he's been in charge of the restrictor plate program for Roush. And he's done one hell of a job looking after both of those teams, the 17 and the 6 with Ryan Newman. But from that point on, once he lost the lead, like I said, he had a great car. Brad Keselowski had a great car. But as expected, sure enough, like I said, eventually William Byron found his way to the front. Martin Trex Jr., who's always been incredible at Homestead Miami Speedway, he found his way to the front. And Denny, coming from all the way back, you know, he's up there to challenge and him and him and Denny, they were racing each other there at the end to win that second stage. Denny sort of slid up in front of him and had a jam on the brakes. And William Byron was able to sneak underneath both of them to win that second stage. And immediately, Truex comes over the radio and says, Oh, F you, Denny. What was that? 
This is the problem I have with Martin Shrex Jr. This was a guy early on in his career from his debut in 2004, his first full-time season in 2006. From 2006 to 2015, he won a grand total of three cup races, Dover, Sonoma, and Pocono. It was easy to pull for him. He was humble. He, you know, you couldn't help but feel for him. All these close calls, all of these heartbreaks, you know, you wanted to see him win. And to me, ever since the, that Gibbs affiliation, switching over to Toyota, and all of a sudden you win 24 races, you win that 2017 championship, now all of a sudden you just expect people to roll over for you on the racetrack. Martin, that's not the way it is, bud. That's not the way it is, and that's not the way it should ever be. This isn't Formula One, okay? Like, and Larry McReynolds even said it himself. He said if he ever, ever had any one of his drivers come over the radio and says, oh, my teammate raced me too hard, he would tell them pretty much to shut the hell up and find someone else to drive for. I mean, dude, it's, it's the end of a stage. A stage. You know, Kurt Busch did the same thing three years ago, bitching when Kevin Harvick passed him the last corner at Chicagoland and win the second stage. Oh, really? Really? That's a teammate? You've got to understand. It's not about yourself all the time. You know, Denny Hamlin wanted to win that stage just as much as you. Kevin Harvick wanted to win that stage just as much as Kurt Busch did in 2018. Don't expect them to bend over for you and let you have the stage. Like I said, this isn't Formula One where Valtteri Botas, you know, he'll stay in second for Lewis Hamilton or Rubens Barrichello, he would stay in second for, for Michael Schumacher. Like I said, that's not the way it works. And if, if you want it to be like that, then go race Formula One, seriously. It, it's, like I said, it just amazes me. And Josh Manley said the same thing too. You know, he, he, he'll whine when people race him hard. That's why it's called racing. You're supposed to race hard for every inch, every position, every point. Dear Lord, you know, can you imagine if Dale Earnhardt Sr. ever heard about these drivers whining and bitching about them racing each other hard? I mean, come on. And Larry McReynolds, he worked with some tough SOBs throughout his career. Dale Earnhardt was one of them. Mike Skinner, Ricky Rudd, Davey Allison. You think that they were going to whine and cry if a teammate raced them hard? Hell no. Like I said, that's the one gripe I, I have with Martin Trex Jr., is, you know, to me, it's like he, he's just let the, the success get to his head. Honest to God. And I know a lot of people feel that way. So from that point on, the last stage, I mean, it was kind of anticlimactic. You know, there really wasn't much that happened aside from Eric Almarola trying to clear himself in front of Ryan Blaney and sure enough, the two of them hitting the wall off a of turn two. And, man, the slow start that both of them have had for, for 2021. It's unbelievable. Blaney was 29th, Eric was 30th. And, I mean, you look at the points, and it's like Boone talked about. I mean, look at, look at all these underdogs that we've had win so far. Michael McDowell in the Daytona 500. Christopher Bell on the Daytona road course. And, I mean, to a degree, I mean, people expected William Byron to win because it is the 24 car. But nevertheless, obviously, with all of these underdogs – there's some big names that are going to get left out of the playoffs. And right now, if the playoffs were to start, these are the guys on the outside looking in as far as the NASCAR playoffs go. Alex Bowman, Kyle Busch, Ricky Stenhouse Jr., 
Ryan Newman, Ross Chastain, Daniel Suarez, Tyler Reddick. Ryan Blaney is 24th in points. Chase Briscoe is 25th. Eric Almarola is 26th. 26th in points, and this is a contract year with Stuart Haas Racing. I'm telling you right now, Eric, you better hope and pray that Smithfield comes back. Otherwise, you're going to be looking for a job in 2022. Corey LaJoy, 27th. Eric Jones, 28th. And all the way down in 34th is Matt DiBenedetto, 14 points after three races. Jamie McMurray and Joey Gase, who only raced in the Daytona 500, they're ahead of him. James Davison, who wasn't in the Daytona 500, is ahead of him. I mean, this could be a fatal blow to Matt DiBenedetto's career if he does not get his season turned around. We all know Austin Sendrick is going to be in that 21 car come 2022. He has to step it up. He really, really does. Otherwise, I can't even know of, I don't even know of any top-notch Xfinity teams or truck teams that would want a guy like that. I mean, you're essentially in a fourth Penske car, and if, and if you can't get those good finishes, I mean, really, what other options are you going to have? He'll be back to driving for a backmarker team, like when he drove the 32, or even the years of Burger King Racing. I mean, this is, and I'm, I'm not trying, like I said, you know, you, you want to see the guy do well. He's a good, genuine guy, but at the end of the day, it's like Terry Bradshaw says himself all the time, it's a performance business. You know, and I really can't think of anything. I mean, I've heard some rumblings that he could be in that second 23XI car. But if I'm Denny Hamlin and Michael Jordan, and you want to expand to a second team, and your two choices are Matt DiBenedetto, who's never won a cup race, never won an Xfinity race, and you have Brad Keselowski, cup champion, nationwide champion, Southern 500, Coca-Cola 600, Brickyard 400 champion, done everything except win the Daytona 500. Obviously, if it came down to those two, all bias aside, I mean, I'd, I'd take Brad Keselowski 10 times out of 10 over Matt Benedetto if I were starting a race team. So, like I said, I mean, Blaney, Blaney has a few more years left on that contract, but for Almarola and especially for Matt Benedetto, this is definitely make or break for them. And, you know, I was going to say, Corey LaJoy was another one. Corey had a decent run going, but sure enough, the engine blew and ended his day early. So, obviously, not a great return to the Cup Series for Steve Letarte. So, sure enough, as the laps wound down Sunday at Miami, the one theme, especially in that final stage, was just the the real dominance of Hendrick Motorsports. Obviously, a lot of people expected Kyle Larson to be up towards the front, but everyone expected him to be the one running away with the race and not William Byron. Chase Elliott himself, you know, Homestead Miami Speedway, it's always been hit and miss for him and Alan Gustafson. I mean, they missed the setup this past Sunday. And I mean, what a save he had coming off of turn four. And if Brad Keselowski didn't back out of the throttle, he would have sent him for a ride right then and there. So Chase was 14th. But speaking of that Penske duo, Brad Keselowski and Joey Logano, best friends. <clears throat> I, <laughs> I kid because I care, as, as Chris Myers likes to say on NASCAR and Fox. As the laps were winding down and it was looking like everyone was going to be good to go on fuel and there wasn't going to be any cautions, 
Homestead Miami Speedway obviously is notorious for tire wear. We see it all the time. We see it all the time with guys running right up against the fence, you know, like a Tyler Reddick or a Kyle Larson, for instance. And so Brad Keselowski was running about seventh. Joey Logano, as it got dark out, that car faded outside the top ten. And so Jeremy Bollins and Paul Wolf, they thought to themselves, hey, you know, we're not going to win the race from seventh. We're not going to win the race, race from twelfth. Maybe if we come down pit road, maybe we could get a whole bunch of guys to follow us. And sure enough, they pitted with about 30-some laps to go, but nobody else came in. I mean, Kurt Busch came in, but sure enough, that was for a loose wheel. And, I mean, he did one hell of a job driving all the way back up to finish eighth. But for Brad Keselowski and Jeremy Bollins and Joey Logano and Paul Wolf, I'll even say it as a Brad Keselowski fan, it feels so weird even a year and a half in, not saying Brad Keselowski and Paul Wolf together anymore. But sure enough, Brad finished 16th after leading 47 laps, and Joey Logano finished all the way back in 25th after him and Paul Wolf after they led the first 12 laps of that race. But Tyler Reddick, you know, he was flying there at the end, especially on that outside wall, and how he was able to get around both Kyle Larson and Martin Trex Jr., but sure enough, he ran out of time. William Byron, Willie B, woo, goes on to score the second win of his career at Homestead Miami Speedway. Tyler Reddick, like I said, tying a career-best second. Martin Trex Jr. was third. Kyle Larson, fourth. His first top five finish with Hendrick Motorsports. And fourth, Kevin Harvick rounding out the top five. Kevin is one of only two drivers to start the year with three top tens and three races. You want to know who the other one is? You're, sh- you're going to be shocked. So obviously it isn't Chase Elliott, Brad Keselowski, Joey Logano, Denny Hamlin. It's not one of those guys. It's Michael McDowell, our Daytona 500 champion. The momentum continues. Finishing sixth at Homestead Miami Speedway. And this wasn't any luck. This wasn't any fuel strategy, any weather. No, I mean, he drove the wheels off of that car. Sixth place finish, hell of a job. Michael McDowell, Drew Blickensdurfer, and the 34 team. I mean, they're showing. I mean, you know, Daytona, it's all about being in the right place at the right time, but to come from all the way back on the Daytona road course to finish eighth and to finish sixth at Homestead Miami Speedway, absolutely incredible. Ryan Newman finishing seventh. Can't help but feel happy for the guy, obviously, after everything that happened last year. You know, last year, Ryan only had two top 10 finishes the whole year. One of them was in the Daytona 500, that horrific crash. He came across the finish line ninth on his roof. And the other one was sixth in October at Talladega. So for Ryan, this was his first top 10 finish on a non-restrictor plate racetrack since he ironically finished seventh at Homestead Miami Speedway back in November of 2019. So like I said, absolute, feel absolutely happy for Ryan Newman to get such a great finish after all he has been through the past 13 months. Kurt Busch overcoming that loose wheel to finish eighth. Alex Bowman, another lucky top 10. Thanks to everybody's misfortune in ninth. And Kyle Busch rounding out the top 10. And Kyle constantly throughout that race was telling Ben Bishore and the new 18 team, he said, we suck. We absolutely suck. Denny Hamlin, penalized for speeding on pit road, he was 11th. Austin Dillon, 12th. Ricky Stenhouse Jr. 
ran inside the top five early on, kind of faded a little bit. He was 13th. Chase Elliott, 14th. Daniel Suarez with Trackhouse Racing, Pitbull, and Justin Marks. Hell of a job by them, finishing 15th. This was Daniel's first top 15 finish since Phoenix, all the way back in November of 2019. Brad Keselowski, like I said, the strategy that him and Jeremy Bullins had just didn't work out. They finished 16th. Ross Chastain, 17th. I know he had that huge block on Matt Benedetto going down into turn three about halfway through the race. Chase Briscoe, the steep learning curve continues. He was 18th. Chris Buescher, 19th after leading 57 laps. And Christopher Bell, man, what a shock. What an absolute shock to finish all the way back in 20th after he finished 8th in this race and obviously coming off of that huge high winning on the Daytona road course. Ryan Priest, first rough finish of the year for him in the 21st. Bubba Wallace, the growing pains for 23XI, they were 22nd. Cole Custer, Cole Custer ran inside the top 5, ran inside the top 10 most of Sunday. Flat tire with a couple laps to go, he finished all the way back in 23rd. So looking ahead to Sunday... Las Vegas Motor Speedway, it has been on the schedule for the NASCAR Cup Series since 1998. And Mark Martin, like I said, this is one of my favorite parts of the show. Greatest moments with any particular racetrack. So Las Vegas Motor Speedway, the first Cup Series race, March 1st, 1998. Mark Martin goes on to win the race, holding off his Roush teammate, Jeff Burton, I mean, Roush, they dominated, absolutely dominated Las Vegas Motor Speedway those early years. And all of his teammates, Jeff Burton, Johnny Benson, Ted Musgrave, they were all in the top ten. Fords, the top seven in that inaugural Las Vegas race. Dale Earnhardt, the highest finishing Chevrolet in eighth. So that was a sign of things to come, was this was a Ford-dominated racetrack the first few years. 1999 and 2000, you know, 1999 Jeff Burton passing Big Brother Ward for the lead and eventually the win with just 10 laps to go to finish 1-2. And then in 2000, to sweep the weekend, winning the Bush race on Saturday and being right in position when the rain came. That's right, a rain-shortened race at Las Vegas Motor Speedway. Jeff Burton won the race and also a million dollars for a fan. That trend continued a year later with Jeff Gordon winning a million dollars for a fan. And that same day, a rookie by the name of Kevin Harvick, the first top 10 finish in his career, finishing eighth. And obviously just a couple days after getting married too. And Ron Hornaday Jr., my favorite Trek Series racer of all time, that was the only top 10 finish in his cup career, finishing ninth. 2002, Sterling Marlin spinning out halfway through the race and coming all the way back to win the race and to beat Jeremy Mayfield. So like I said, the trend of Roush dominating Las Vegas Motor Speedway in those early years. Well, 2003. 2003 was a breakout year for Dale Earnhardt Jr. and somewhat for Dale Earnhardt Incorporated. That was the year that he matured into a championship contender and he showed, hey, I can win races and I can dominate at places other than Daytona and Talladega. And he had a dominant car that Sunday at Las Vegas Motor Speedway, leading 97 laps. His teammate, Michael Waltrip, as well. I mean, they ran 1-2. Michael led some laps. Steve Park, little did I know, that was going to be his last top 10 for DEI. But Dale Jr., 
when they came in for the last pit stop, they had a little trouble, and Matt Kenseth goes on to win the race. And that would be his only win of his championship season in 2003. Now in 2004, him and Kevin Harvick duking it out for the win, Kevin running out of gas with a couple laps to go, and sure enough, Matt getting a second straight Vegas win. Now, from that point on, the Roush dominance ended and it became a Hendrick dominance. Jimmy Johnson winning three straight races at Las Vegas Motor Speedway. 2005 beating his rookie teammate, Kyle Busch. His first top five finish at his home track. Finishing second, big brother Kurt in third. But sure enough, Jimmy's car and Kyle's car, they both failed post-race inspection. Nevertheless, he got to keep the win. And then the following year in 2006, passing Matt Kenseth at the last corner on the last lap. It was the only lap Jimmy led all day. And then the first race on the new configuration to hold off his teammate, Jeff Gordon, for the win in a year that they dominated the series. And then, sure enough, in 2008, it's so funny how sometimes you just get this weird, weird feeling when things happen. And that 2008 race, of course, we'll never forget that horrific crash that Jeff Gordon had on the backstretch and the damage that it did to his back and honestly how he was never really the same after that. But that day, Dale Earnhardt Jr., he finished second to Carl Edwards. It was his first top five finish with Hendrick Motorsports. I remember telling my parents, I said, something's up on Carl's car. Something is up. I said, you watch, that car is going to fail post-race inspection. Guess what? Just a couple hours after that race was over, sure enough, Carl Edwards in post-race inspection. They found, sure enough, the car failed. Car fails post-race inspection. He gets penalized 100 points, and his crew chief, Bob Osborne, was suspended for about a month or so. And a lot of people asked Dale Jr., they said, you know, are you going to protest? You know, are you going to do you want Carl to get disqualified? And he said, no. He said, I I don't want to win a race that way. So sure enough, the next year, Kyle Busch finally getting a win in his hometown after having to start at the back of the field. That three-wide pass that he made on Clint Boyer and Jeff Burton to take the lead for good and how his spotter Jeff Dickerson said, say goodnight, Gracie. That was, even though I couldn't stand Kyle Busch at the time, I thought that was pretty badass. Then in 2010, Jeff Gordon... His final season with Steve Letarte, they dominated that race, leading 219 laps. But that last, that last pit stop, they take four tires. Jimmy Johnson takes two. And sure enough, Jimmy Johnson and Kevin Harvick, they end up beating Jeff Gordon. Now, I remember back in 2003 when I said that Dale Earnhardt Jr., his team, they had trouble on their last pit stop. Matt Kenseth goes on to win his only race that year in his championship season. Well... Tony Stewart, his championship season, he dominated the day at Las Vegas Motor Speedway. And they had trouble on their last stop. And the guy that he would beat for the championship in a tiebreaker, Carl Edwards, goes on to get his only win in 2011. And I specifically remember how Tony said after that race was over, second sucks. (laughs) 2012, Dale Earnhardt Jr. dominated the weekend. He qualified fourth. He was fast absolutely fast in all the practices turn one lap one takes the lead away from his new Hendrick teammate Casey Kane the crowd is going absolutely wild right off the bat 
we're all thinking this is the day Dale Jr. finally gets back to victory lane, leads 70 laps on the day. And guess what happens? They come down pit road. Steve Letarte takes four tires. Other guys, they take gas only or two tires. And they ended up finishing 10th. And Tony Stewart, in his championship defense, he holds off Jimmy Johnson for the win. Now, it's not very often that we get guys that went on their birthday, but sure enough, we had it in 2013. Matt Kenseth, at the young age of 41, his first season with Joe Gibbs Racing, holding off Casey Kane. They had some epic battles for the win that year. Las Vegas, Kansas, Bristol, and how Matt, time and time again on that, on that radio throughout the race, how he was telling his spotter, he's like, get these guys out of the way. Get these guys out of the way. And sure enough, being able to hold off Casey Kane and become the third driver in NASCAR history to win on their birthday, joining Kale Yarborough and his Joe Gibbs teammate, Kyle Busch. Here's the funny thing. We all remember, Daryl Waltrip said it best, we all remember the races we lost instead of the ones that we won. And 2014 as a Dale Jr. fan, that was just the latest example. And they win the Daytona 500, him and Steve Letarte. And Dale Jr. talked about it on his podcast this past Tuesday. He said he was so heartbroken when he found out that Steve Letarte was going to leave the team after 2014 to go and become an analyst on NBC. But he said, honestly, Steve, that year, those were some of the best calls that he made in his career as a crew chief. From that point on, when they won that Daytona 500 to start the year off, Steve just had that attitude like, screw it, what have I got to lose? This is my last year. And they won the Daytona 500. They finished second to Kevin Harvick at Phoenix. I mean, really nobody had anything for Kevin that day. But they go to Vegas, late caution, and sure enough, he has Dale Jr. stay out. He takes the lead. The crowd is going nuts. Clean air is such a virtue at Vegas, as we're going to see this Sunday. But long green flag runs as well, and it came down to fuel mileage. And who was the master when it came to fuel mileage back in the day? Brad Keselowski and Paul Wolf. So Dale Jr., he's trying to do everything that he can to save fuel. Everything that he can to save fuel. Meanwhile, Brad Keselowski, he's coming like an absolute bat out of hell. And... As we have become, as we became accustomed to, Dale Jr. running right up against the wall, Brad Keselowski running the middle groove, and just that speed and that launch and momentum up off the corner, you know, Dale Jr. was, was able to pull away from him. And that last lap, as he's going down the back straightaway, all of a sudden the car starts shaking back and forth, and he's out of gas. And Brad Keselowski is there to take advantage and sweep the weekend at Las Vegas. Nationwide race on Saturday, cup race on Sunday. And for Brad, it was a bit of an emotional win because William Clay, for you know, Clay family and Ford family, <clears throat> William Clay Ford, excuse me, he'd passed away that particular weekend. And obviously he dedicated the win to him. And when Brad won at Las Vegas again in 2016, 40-mile-an-hour wins. 40-mile-an-hour wins. And passing Kyle Busch for the lead with just six laps to go, holding off his teammate Joey Logano. 
And just seeing Brad, the American flag actually flew out of his car as he was trying to do his, his celebration. And obviously for Brad, I mean, that was, you know, he felt awful about that because we all know how much that American flag means to him. But it was just such a crazy day at Vegas with rain, wind, even a bit of a sandstorm about halfway through the race. I mean, it was just absolutely bizarre. And Brad looked like he was on his way to another spring win there in 2017, and something happened with the engine, whether it got a vapor lockup or something. And sure enough, Martin Trex Jr. passed him with two laps to go. And Joey Logano trying to go, trying to pass Kyle Busch there at the end, and he spins Kyle, and Kyle punches him in the face on pit road after the race was over. And sure enough, you just see the blood coming coming down from Kyle Busch's forehead. He said, I got dumped. He said, that's the way that Joey races. He says, that's how I'm going to race him from now on. And then sure enough, this race two years ago, Joey Logano holding off Brad Keselowski there at the end. And this race last year, sure enough, Joey is the defending winner of this race with Paul Wolf and the old two crew. Joey won this race last year, but had a lot of things fall his way. So finally, this coming Sunday, the Pennzoil 400 at Las Vegas Motor Speedway, 3.30 on Fox. Mike Joy, Jeff Gordon, and Clint Boyer with the call. As I said, Joey Logano is the defending winner of this race. And on the pole is Kevin Harvick in that beautiful, and I mean beautiful, Mobile One black and silver Ford. Starting alongside him in second is none other than Willie B, William Byron. Woo! Third is going to be Kyle Larson in a beautiful, and I mean beautiful, blue and white Ricky Hendrick tribute car. Going back to the GMAC days, HendrickCars.com. Starting fourth is Martin Trex Jr. Two wins at Las Vegas Motor Speedway, just like Kevin Harvick himself. Kevin has won this race, 2015 and 2018 Truex. The win there in 2017 and the fall race in 2019. Fifth is Michael McDowell. Sixth is Denny Hamlin. Seventh is Las Vegas' own Kurt Busch, who won here in the fall of last year. Chase Elliott, eighth. Alex Bowman, ninth. And Brad Keselowski rounds out the top ten. Like I said, Brad has three wins at Las Vegas Motor Speedway, 2014, 2016, and the fall race of 2018. 11th is Tyler Reddick. Like I said, a lot of success there. Austin Dillon, a lot of success there as well. Ryan Newman, 13th. Kyle Busch, the 2009 winner, another hometown kid. Joey Logano in 15th. Like I said, he's won the last two spring races at Las Vegas. Christopher Bell, 16th. Ricky Stenhouse Jr., 17th. Chris Buescher, 18th. Ryan Priest, 19th. And Cole Custer is 20th. 21st is Ross Chastain, who got his first Xfinity Series win there in the fall of 2018. Daniel Suarez, 22nd. Bubba Wallace matching his car number, 23rd. 24th is Chase Briscoe, who swept the Xfinity races here last year. 25th is Justin Moneymaker Haley. 26th, Ryan Blaney. 27th is Anthony Alfredo. 28th, Eric Almarola. 29th is Eric Jones, and 30th is Matt DiBenedetto, who finished second in both of the Vegas races last year. Then, of course, like I said, some of the underfunded guys, Garrett Smithley, Cody Ware, Corey LaJoy, 
somewhat. B.J. McLeod, Josh Balicki, Quinn Huff, Joey Gase, and Timmy Hill. That is your starting lineup for Sunday at Las Vegas Motor Speedway. And the Grand Marshal for Sunday's race is Las Vegas Raiders quarterback Derek Carr. Now, when I texted Kyle Williams on Tuesday about the announcement, he said, Oh, Jesus. We were all kind of hoping that it was going to be John Gruden that, that was going to give the call a command to get vengeance. Can you picture that call? So 267 laps. Stage 1 ends lap 80. Stage 2, lap 160. When I look at this race, the one thing, the common theme that I saw last year was Kevin Harvick, Chase Elliott. They were fast early on. They had great short run speed, but not great long run speed. And you look at, obviously, Joey Logano, the Penske guys, him and Brad Keselowski, they had that long run speed. Ryan Blaney as well. And even Alex Bowman. And the crazy thing is, with this race, February of last year, it it was looking like it was going to come down to Ryan Blaney and Alex Bowman. Blaney was leading with just a couple laps to go. Bowman was closing in on him. And Ross Chastain spun on the back straightaway. And sure enough, that call, do you come in for tires or do you stay out? And Ryan Blaney and Todd Gordon, Joey Logano's former crew chief, they decided to pit. And Greg Ives with Alex Bowman, he thought, well, we're going to pit too. And, of course, Paul Wolf, as we know, undoubtedly the most unconventional crew chief there is in the garage area. We saw how many epic strategies he had that worked with Brad Keselowski. Well, sure enough, it worked once again with Joey Logano as Joey was able to hold off Matt Benedetto and Ricky Stenhouse Jr. and Austin Dillon for the win in just his second race with Paul Wolf on the box. So that's the thing, like, you know, with Homestead Miami Speedway, we saw it come down to tire wear and tire conservation. Here at Las Vegas Motor Speedway, the track is bumpy, but the surface isn't as abrasive as Miami. And I think because of that, and because of this 550 horsepower package and the high, the high downforce that it has, this Sunday, it's going to be more about track position instead of tires. So you're, you're eventually going to see something like that. I mean, it, it even happened in the September race with Kurt Busch. You know, Kurt, he was lucky enough. The caution came out during a sequence of green flag pit stops. He stayed out. He had that track position. He was able to hold off Matty D and Denny. Now, the weird thing with Denny is, as much as he dominated the fall race, he's always struggled here in the spring race. So I'm looking at some of these guys. I think William Byron, I think he's going to have another good run. Him and Rudy Fugel, their truck race together here in 2016, they finished fifth. I think Kyle Larson, I mean, he had a lot of top fives there driving for Chip Ganassi. I think Truex is definitely going to be a factor. I mean, he had a tire go down in this race last year. The Hendrick guys, I'm curious. Like I said, Chase Elliott and Alex Bowman, you know, they have the speed at Las Vegas last year. Does it carry over this year? With Brad Keselowski, I do not see that same dominance and that same speed at Las Vegas with Jeremy Bullins that he had with Paul Wolf. So this weekend with Brad, I'm sort of expecting a top 10, but really not anything major. As far as Penske, I mean, the start that Ryan Blaney has gotten off to, really the only one that I see having a, a true shot to win this race is Joey Logano. And of course, the, the RCR duo with Tyler Reddick and Austin Dillon, like I said, I think they are definitely going to be 
you wouldn't say dark horses, but I think they'll definitely be running inside the top five a lot on Sunday. As far as the Gibbs quartet, I guess you could say, I think Truex has the best chance. Kyle Busch, they're still missing something. Christopher Bell, like I said, even though they won the Daytona Road Course, him and Adam Stevens, they still have some things to work on. And I definitely can't wait to see how Chris Buescher and Ryan Newman, how they do this weekend for Roush. Was last weekend a fluke, or is this a sign of things to come? So ultimately, as far as my pick for Sunday, so to recap things for tonight, I'm going with Sheldon. Boone's going with Sheldon Creed. I'm going with Kyle Busch. For tomorrow, he's going with Noah Gregson. I'm going with Austin Sindrick. For Sunday, Boone is taking none other than Joey Logano to win at Las Vegas for the third spring race in a row. Me, on the other hand, I'm a lot like Larry McReynolds. I love my trends, or as Larry McReynolds would say, the trends of the race. And when I look at the last 10 spring races at Las Vegas Motor Speedway, (laughs) I love Larry Mack. Now, Kevin Harvick, like I said, he won this race. Him and Rodney Childers, they won there in 2015. Pretty dominant fashion, winning by a considerable margin over Ryan Newman and Dale Earnhardt Jr. And then in 2018, how they dominated the spring race at Vegas, leading 214 laps, beating Kyle Busch by almost three seconds. Then, of course, the controversy with the rear window caved in and how Kevin was penalized a bunch of points and Rodney Childers almost ended up getting suspended. So Boone has that trend of Joey Logano winning a third spring race in a row at Las Vegas, just like Jimmy Johnson did from 2005 to 2007. Well, here's my trend. Kevin Harvick in 2015, Kevin Harvick in 2018, Kevin Harvick in 2021. He is my pick to go to victory lane this Sunday at Las Vegas Motor Speedway. And like I said, that beautiful black and silver Mobile One Ford. And how ironic and how special would that be, the 20th anniversary of his first top 10 finish in the Cup Series. Like I said, he finished eighth in this race just a few days after him and Delana were married out in Las Vegas. So there you have it for tonight. I have Kyle Busch. Jason Boone has Sheldon Creed for tomorrow. I have Austin Sendrick. He has Noah Gregson. For Sunday, he has Joey Logano, and I have Kevin Harvick. So that's going to do it for episode 49 of Jake's Take. I appreciate you guys tuning in once again. Myself and Johnny Glow, all these crazy schedule conflicts that we've had throughout the week. We're going to try and get an episode in sometime on Sunday, maybe late morning, early afternoon before the race. So enjoy the racing this weekend. Have an awesome weekend. Have a great Friday night. Y'all take it easy.